This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Chapter 9 Claw-like hands and burning eyes The Christmas season was upon them. Under ordinary circumstances, the house would have been filled with company and much time and thought devoted to the festivities, for which Timberley was noted. But this year, there were neither guests nor merry-makings. Judith, with the help of young Will, arranged a tree at the schoolhouse to which all of the neighborhood flocked, bringing gifts for each other to hang upon its branches. There was also a larger tree at the church in Woodridge on Christmas night. Again, it was Judith and Will Tomlinson, in company with the Turners and Mitchells, who took the children to see Santa Claus. He came in through the basement on account of the stovepipe and bore a remarkable resemblance to Jesse Moffat. But at Timberley, there was neither tree nor Santa Claus. There was only the abundant feast day dinner for which the weary, sorely tried family had little appetite, and of which Abigail refused to partake. From the moment of her alarm on that fateful Friday evening, she had failed rapidly. For Richard still refused to send Thorne away, and Judith continued to support him in the stand he was taking. If you give in to her now, you will be a slave for the rest of your life. There is no tyranny like that of the chronic invalid. When your wife realizes you can't be coerced, she'll begin eating again and get well. You don't think she's in any real danger? He asked this question repeatedly. Judith always reassured him. Once he told her, I feel as if you were the only friend I had left. His entire family, mother, brother, sisters, and brothers-in-law were beginning to urge him to get rid of the child who seemed, by some strange alchemy, to be responsible for his wife's condition. Judith alone upheld him in his determination. I don't know what I'd do without you, he said. These were precious days to Judith, in a house where gloom and anxiety darkened every face where laughter was hushed because a woman lay wasting away. The lonely schoolteacher lived in a world of secret happiness. Heretofore, Richard Tomlinson had turned in all the trials of his life to his mother. Now he turned to a woman he barely knew. If Anne Tomlinson felt any resentment, she did not show it. She was too generous to feel jealousy, too honestly concerned for her son, to add to his distress by any word of her own. She did not understand her daughter-in-law's condition. 
she accepted the doctor's diagnosis that there was nothing physically wrong with Abigail. But Miss Anne had seen too many people die not to recognize the face of death afar off. She appealed in her usual direct manner to Judith. I know you're doing what you think is right, Miss Judith, in befriending a homeless child. Judith had taken Thorne into her own room since the night she had talked with Richard. None of us has any feeling against the girl, Miss Anne went on. Nor do we begrudge her a home. But, under the circumstances, she ought not to be here. You're making it difficult for the rest of us. I'm only doing what Mr. Richard asked me to, said Judith. His mother replied, But he doesn't understand that his wife is dying. You and I do. The two women looked at each other in silence. Then the eyes of the younger woman fell. At this time, Abigail lay upon her bed, refusing to eat, growing thinner day by day, until it seemed that nothing but the claw-like hands and burning eyes and dark red braids of her hair remained of the wasted body under the bed quilts. She was proud of her quilts, some of which were made entirely of silk and satin pieces, hoarded for years. They were usually kept in a big oak chest with some of her family heirlooms, but now she had them all brought out and piled upon her bed because she complained of being cold. There was a fire in the room day and night, but the snows of January were now piled thick upon the window ledges, and her starved body was always cold. The January snows thawed under the first pale suns of February. The false spring froze in the icy blasts of March. But Abigail never rose from her bed after the night Thorn made the cucumber cow. Some of the family sat in her room all the time. They took turns sitting with Abigail. All except Thorn. Great care was taken when Thorne's face was never glimpsed by the woman lying in the tall oak bed. Thorne was forbidden to pass by the windows on that side of the house. She was made to go round by the road when returning from school, instead of taking the shortcut through the lane. Her name was never mentioned. Her presence in the house was tactically ignored. But Abigail knew she was there. Day after day, to each member of the family, she put the question. She's still here, isn't she? Being Tomlinson's, they did not lie. The child is not bothering you, Abigail. She keeps out of your way. She doesn't have to see me to kill me. All she needs to do is torture that doll. If she isn't doing things to that doll, why won't she tell you where it is? The disappearance of the doll was a mystery. Thorne insisted that she had never seen it since the evening she brought it to Raji. The little boys were questioned. A thorough search of the house failed to produce it. But Abigail's imagination licked ceaselessly at the doll as a dog's tongue licks at a sore. She had other company besides the family, neighbors from the countryside, members of the church where she had once been an active leader, and the minister, Mr. Jameson. 
As time went on, she took a morbid pleasure in having visitors. For to all who came, she talked about the doll and how she was dying from witchcraft, as Henry Shook's cow had died. It was very embarrassing to the family. Henry Shook himself came one afternoon, a tall, gaunt, scarecrow of a man, clean-brushed as though for Sunday, and with him his lean, work-worn wife, wearing her best bonnet. The Shooks had had nothing but ill luck since coming into the state, and the loss of their cow was a serious calamity. Privately, they were ready to believe that not only Flossie, but their whole enterprise was bewitched. But they had heard of Abigail's strange obsession, and they had come out of the kindness of their hearts to explain that their cow had undoubtedly eaten poison weed before coming to the Timberley pasture. We lost three cows from it before putting Flossie on your land, Miss Abigail, said Henry Shook. I said to Marthy then, maybe we can save Flossie. And she said, provided she ain't already got the weed in her belly. Those were her very words, weren't they, Marthy? I said, stomach corrected his spouse. But the cow had weed sickness on her, that I am sure. Abigail fixed her hollow eyes on the well-meaning pair and demanded, How much did my husband pay you for coming over here and telling me this tale? The shooks were hurt and embarrassed. They took their departure soon after. The minister happened to be calling that same afternoon. He had been a witness of the shooks' kindly effort and dismal failure to relieve Abigail's fears. He appeared to be unmoved by either. He sat silent throughout, watching the school teacher who had brought her work downstairs and was grading papers at a small table near the window. When the other visitors had gone, Mr. Jameson said, I wonder whatever became of that doll Miss Tomlinson seems so distressed about. The schoolmistress, apparently absorbed in her task, started nervously, and dropped a sheath of papers. But the minister had surprised a look in her eyes he had seen there once before. Abigail had days when her flickering strength revived and she would ask to be propped up in bed and given her piecework. This was her favorite employment and consisted in cutting out quilt pieces with a pair of very sharp scissors. She found the same enjoyment in slicing odd shapes from a scrap of cloth that a child finds in cutting out paper dolls. She liked to display her skill in her handiwork to Judith. The school teacher was still her choice of companions. She no longer looked upon her as an ally against Thorn, for nothing escaped her eyes and ears, and she knew that Judith was upholding Richard in his stand but she derived a perverse satisfaction from discussing with the schoolmistress the inevitability of her own death. I'm dying. You know I'm dying, she would say grimly triumphant, almost as though she were willing to die to prove her point. I'm worse than I was yesterday. You can't deny it. Judith would answer dogmatically. If you persist in thinking you are worse, you create conditions for it. Have you forgotten what I read to you yesterday? With Richard's permission, she was reading to Abigail from the books in her father's trunk. 
in the hope that the invalid might be made to understand the power of mental suggestion. You read me the book on black magic yesterday. To show you how the victim's mind can trick him into anything. Do you think my mind can trick me into thinking I'm choking? This choking sensation was Abigail's latest symptom. It dated from one afternoon when Judith had described rather vividly the sufferings of a woman she had once known who was dying of a malignant throat ailment. Certainly your mind can trick you. There's nothing wrong with your throat. I'm having the same symptoms that woman had. Of course you are. I tried that story out on you just to see how impressionable you were. This proves it's all in your mind, because you never had those symptoms until I told you how that woman complained of a sensation like a string around her throat choking her to death. Abigail's eyes grew cunning. I'll bet if we could find that doll, we'd find a string tied round its neck so tight, it's choking me. Judith said, That's just another symptom of hysteria. And smiled almost complacently. You think I'm crazy, said Abigail. But you'll see. Wait till she begins practicing her tricks on you. When her listener refused to snap at this bait, she went on. You're befriending her because you want to please Richard. But the time will come when you'll hate her, just as I do. A sharp slash of the scissors punctuated every phrase. Then you'll try to get rid of her, as I did. And she'll put a hex on you. You'll begin choking and dying, just as I'm choking and dying, because she won't let you breathe. The failing voice was indescribably eerie, Judith said firmly. I'm not going to read to you anymore. And she talked persistently of cheerful things. But at night in her bed, she would remember the words of the dying woman, and she would be acutely conscious of the little girl sleeping beside her. It was a huge bed. The feather mattress made billowy heels between the two sleepers, so that neither touched the other. Yet she found it increasingly difficult to sleep because of Thorne's presence in the bed. This was due to her lifelong habit of sleeping alone, undoubtedly. It was in no wise the result of Abigail's direful croakings, but she began wishing some circumstance might arise to relieve her of her strange bedfellow. It came one night unexpectedly. The children were in the habit of undressing by the downstairs fire because the upper rooms were unheated. One night, when the two little boys had already scampered upstairs with their grandmother, Richard came down from the sick room to find Thorn in her flannel nightgown, huddled on the living room hearth. When he told her she'd better get to bed before she caught cold, she surprised him by asking if she could sleep downstairs in the trundle bed. Why do you want to sleep down here, Cricket? She had always complained that the trundle bed was too short for her. But when he urged to give a reason for changing, she said she'd rather sleep on the floor than spend another night with Miss Judith. Why, Thorn, aren't you ashamed? Richard was so astonished that he was rather short with her. Well, Miss Judith has been so kind to you. It's not me, Richard. 
It's her. She doesn't like sleeping with me. Did she say so? No, but I can tell. Richard sighed. He was very tired. You're entirely too sensitive, Thorn. Miss Judith is the only friend you have in this house. Thorn's eyes flashed through sudden tears. She's not my friend, you are. And I don't want any other friend but you, Richard. Richard, worn to a thin edge, spoke sharply. If it hadn't been for Miss Judith, you've been shipped out of here by now. Why should she take your part if she disliked you? Anne Tomlinson had come back downstairs. She had heard the colloquy by the fire. She heard her son's question and Thorne's retort flung back with a childish sob. She's trying to get on the good side of you, stupid. That's why. Richard tossed the whole matter aside with a weary gesture, but his mother said, Let the child sleep in the trundle bed if she likes, and bustled away to get the bedding. But once out of the room, she stopped still, while a half-formed suspicion in her own mind took root. Thorne had recognized what she herself had feared, but refused to acknowledge. That Judith was in love with Richard. Anne Tomlinson was never a woman to flinch from the truth. But seldom had she faced so unpleasant a truth as the one confronting her now. Judith was encouraging Richard in a course which might very possibly result in his wife's death. The schoolmistress was in the dining room when Miss Anne came through with an armful of blankets. She was sitting near the lamp with the family's darning basket in her lap. No one could deny that she had been most helpful during these trying days. I wanted to tell you, Miss Judith, that I'm putting Thorn downstairs tonight in the trundle bed. Judith looked relieved. Perhaps that's better. I don't think she rests well with me. Miss Anne did not comment. She was busy folding a large-sized blanket to fit a small-sized bed. Judith went on. You don't suppose there's any danger of Miss Abigail's finding out how near she is? We'll have to risk it tonight, and after tonight it won't matter. Anne Tomlinson looked straight at the schoolteacher. Because tomorrow I'm sending Thorn to Kentucky. There was the strangest silence in the room. Then Judith said, Don't you think that's a question for Mr. Tomlinson to decide? The tiny gray-haired woman spoke with quiet authority. Miss Judith, sometimes we have a mistaken sense of loyalty. You are loyal to Richard because he helped you in the matter of the school. And Richard is loyal to a little girl because he thinks she has no other friend. But both of you overlook the fact that a woman in this house is dying. Abigail's mind may not be right. I don't know. But I do know she'll die if she doesn't get relief from this feeling she has about Thorn. And the only way to relieve her is to send the child away. So, I'm sending Thorn to my daughter in Kentucky. It was a long speech for Miss Anne. She picked up her blankets and went back to the front room. Judith laid aside the darning basket and went softly upstairs. Her bedroom was icy, but she felt no chill. Her body burned. She closed the door behind her and turned the key in the lock. Then she lighted a pair of candles on her dresser. 
Softly, she opened her dresser drawer and groped beneath a pile of underclothing. Her fingers closed upon the rag doll. Stay tuned to the end of the show for a preview to next week's episode. Hey everyone, I'm Valerie Moss, and I'm the narrator for this mystery book, Project EF, as well as producer and director. You can find me at ValerieMoss.ca and check out my podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. The show is about eating, reading, and creating. I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Here's the cast of characters for today's show. Hi, my name is Carol Sin. I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. I will be the voice of Miss Ann Tomlinson. You can find me at carolsin.wordpress.com. You can also find me on YouTube and Instagram as Carol Sin. Hi, my name is Kylie and I'm playing the role of Judith. You can find me in my new podcast called Cryptic Soup streaming now. You can also connect with me on my website, kingmarketingbykylie.com, and on my Instagram, at kmorgan, with two A's. You're listening to Bottom Shelf Recording Talk. Sounds boring. Oh my, yes. With your hosts, James Seabrook. Editing, mixing, and additional voices by James Seabrook at Two Bodies of Water Productions. Follow our hosts on Twitter, at Two Bodies of Water. You got that mic in a comfortable spot yet? I'm still working on it. Hello, my name is London Moss, and I was on my mom's podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. We did a few episodes together of London and Mom. Anyway, I did Thorn, a.k.a. Cricket, on Project DF, not known as I'm not telling the real name. <laughs> Thank you. I hope you like listening. Bye. Hey everybody, my name is Rafe Telsch, I'm from Roanoke, Virginia in the United States, and I am the voice of Richard Tomlinson. You can find me on the podcast Have Not Seen This. Hi, my name is Rain, like the weather, and I will be playing the role of Abigail. Uh, I have a YouTube page called WWE What If, where I talk about wrestling reviews and my anger against some storylines that I can't stand. Music for this show is by Text Me Records and Leviath called The Black Cat. Cover art image by Danny Muller. Podcast trailer and cover art designed by me, Valerie Moss. Here's a preview for next week's show. I can't think of putting it on you. But Judith urged, Tomorrow, Saturday. I can sleep all day if need be. After much pleading, he yielded, on condition that she call him at midnight. The rag throat was no bigger than a pencil. She dropped the doll with a sound of speechless terror and clutched 
her own throat. Get kerosene. The woman's choking to death. They heard arguments over the dangers and merits of kerosene and goose grease, with Dr. Caxton shutting down Anne Tomlinson. Credit note, Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies by Tchaikovsky. Free, no copyright, music available on YouTube. Link in the show notes. Disclaimer. Margaret Eckhard is the author of this book. The audio drama is based off of. Copyright 1941 by Doubleday Publishing House, now owned by Penguin Random House, who only supports current authors who checked all available resources and directories for literary rights agents and contacts and found nothing. We tried to track down errors of Eckhart's, but to no avail. We reached out to the Indiana Library, who houses the largest amount of articles of Margaret Eckhart. They provided us with a renewal ID, R579915, and had consulted directories for her errors and contacts. However, found nothing beyond Doubleday Publishing House, which was a dead end. We searched extensively for the copyright holders of this book to get permission to make the audio drama, but were unable to find them. And if anyone has any information about the copyright for the book or the rights holders, please reach out to me.